Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club, Clubhouse. So right now it's closed off, it's in beta testing, you have to be an iPhone member, but if you join Patreon and through Patreon join the Discord, you will be able to get uh, Clubhouse invites. And the reason why we want people to get those Clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans, and you need to get invited to take part of that, including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care hey how's it going this is t our guest today is garrison lovely if you don't mind just um telling people what you do what you're about where to find you all the good stuff that you think they need to know yeah sure hey everybody uh i'm garrison I'm a freelance journalist uh, based in Brooklyn. I write mostly long-form articles. I've written about uh, the American prison system, prosecutors, psychedelics, and the uh, latest uh, thing I wrote was about business podcasts. I also host a podcast called The Most Interesting People I Know, uh, where I interviewed Trevor a few weeks back. Um, Full-time, I work at a nonprofit that sends cash directly to people living in poverty, and I do uh, tech stuff for them. And uh, I'm addicted to Call of Duty. Yeah, you know, um, that's another thing that you see a lot over in Clubhouse is there's a lot of tech people on there because it was originally by them. It was tech and venture capital people. And those rooms are really interesting. I mean, it would be no revelation to you because um, I'm sure you've had enough exposure to that world. But those are some weird lizard people. Like some of the <laughs> stuff they talk about, lots of talk of uh, personal maximizing and personal metrics and weird like self-cult cult-like behavior of... Um, you know, performance maximize. It's just, it's just weird. I, I sit in on them sometimes. And I'm like, oh my God, these people are so divorced from humanity. Life optimizers, yeah. Life optimizers, thank you. I couldn't yeah. find the... And, and you know something? Uh, the article that I had you on to talk about today, The Reputation Launderers, talks about the explicit politics of um, these people. But what I would really like, what I wish this article had... Uh, more of, but there's only so much time you could put into the article. Like, you know, it's, it's not a book. Maybe for a follow-up piece, I would like to know about not explicitly political parts of these people, because I do think mm. it ties into the p- political parts, but like, I can see why a lot of them would be apologists for conservatism or libertarianism, because they kind of have a micro bootstraps mentality. Like, the big scale political um, affiliations or leanings aren't that surprising when you see how they conduct their life on the micro level. Like like this idea that, you know, if I think and hack and work hard enough, I can be limitless. I can, um, you know, 
create the limitless pill from the movie in my own way because <laughs> i'm someone who used to read a lot of this stuff and then after a while i just was like this is just too much i tried tim ferris's books and i was like he's not vague he actually gives very detailed stuff but it's almost too detailed like even the four hour work week that's not a real four hour work week because the amount of time no. you have to do to keep hustling and scamming like i don't use the word scamming but it's very borderline like you know like getting um assistance and virtual assistance in india to like promote your blog and do comments on other people's blogs that link back to your blogs and all this stuff i was like all this stuff you're doing of always constantly reinventing the wheels that's like more than 40 hours you're doing like 60 80 hours of marketing shilling scheming and all this stuff but the trick is you're not spending four hours you're not spending 40 hours at a desk yeah. uh doing a conventional job but it's not even that much of a hack it's just if anything it's a unmanageable routine the same with this four-hour body thing the amount of supplements and out-of-pocket lab tests that you would have to take would you know first off it's there's a lot of white privilege built in because you can't uh, you can't do that easily just uh, drop a thousand dollars on you know these extensive lab tests then a couple months later you know after you take the thousands of dollars of of weird exotic supplements that he has for you and fall and get the ice bath and do all this stuff. At least put all the money in that. You know, six months later, you know, you spend like two thousand dollars on a follow up test to see how you did because you know insurance doesn't cover a lot of these these tests. It's it's um I can business podcasts, venture capitalism, and finance. These life optimizers they all kind of occupy this weird space that I can't understand, but it feels vaguely right wing. And in this, this article, you talk about the times when they explicitly interact with the right wing and kind of tell on themselves. But I'm also very curious in how a lot of their more seemingly innocuous stuff is a sign or an indication of these same tendencies, these same leanings. Like if you look at them in a the small level, doesn't become that surprising that they believe this on the big level. Um, do you understand like what I'm trying to talk yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think there is a connection. And I think it's like, they're at the very least favorable towards technocracy. Um, like they're optimizers kind of by nature. And like speaking more for like Tim Ferriss or like uh, the Freakonomics podcast, uh, Stephen Dubner, their way of looking at the world is like, you know, you're trying to produce widgets or something and like you've got inputs and outputs and you try and make the system. Can you define technocracy? Uh, <laughs> great question. I, I think it's like the idea that you let technically... Um, expert people run the different components of society. So like a technocratic institution would be the Federal Reserve, which is, you know, not elected. They're appointed. Uh, the governors are appointed by uh, the president. And their goal is to like try and keep inflation in check and like try and like make sure the money supply has like enough money. And it's not like a, an elected position. And like maybe like the opposite of the technocracy would be like the Senate or the House of Representatives where you have like clearly not expert people just getting winning a popularity contest and then governing from there um there's it reminds me of this word um that i don't know if it was coined by him but it was at least um popularized by him but uh eugenie morozov has a book to click here save everything and it's about what he calls um technological solutionism mm. where this idea that um 
every real world problem has a technological solution and and saving everything just comes down to coming up with the right app or the right algorithm or the right uh, big data application. From what you describe, it seems like um, technocracy sounds a lot like uh, a society run by the principles of solutionism, like where the, the solutionists are... Um, in charge of everything. Yeah, and, and like to be clear, I, I don't think uh, I'm not like anti-technocracy as a concept. Like the Federal Reserve, like is fairly competent at doing what it tries to do. And if you had it be like an elected position, I think things would be worse. Um, like there are certain things where you want experts running the show, but to just have experts running like every show. I mean, what does it mean to be an expert at like governing? Um, like I preferred like Bernie Sanders to Elizabeth Warren, and Warren I think had better chops as like a technocrat than Bernie did. But I think like Bernie had like better values and like a better organizing theory um, and was like willing to fight for what he believed in more than Warren, who I think was like more focused on advancing her own, you know, star, which is like separate from the technocratic question. Yeah. But I also think um, the problem with uh, technocratic solutionism as well is that it creates like a myopic view of what can solve things, because that's when you get weird proposals, like instead of just saying, just forgive all students student loan debt like like the idea of just pairing back or trying a solution that's minimalist or doesn't have to do with technology doesn't appeal to these people it doesn't feel right unless you put it in app form so you get weird proposals like um i forgot if it's kamala harris or hillary clinton that said like uh, certain loan forgiveness if you if you create an app or something or or like pell grants for people who like are minorities who started a business within like five years of going to college like whatever kamala's proposal was that was like yeah yeah there's so many weird proposals that just add a layer of technological bureaucracy or you know trying to solve a problem with something else that's inevitably going to cause another complicated technological problem uh you know the idea of turn turning the idea of Going backwards in technology to improve the world doesn't um, uh, come into come into their mind at at all. Yeah, I think like Obamacare is an interesting example where like there was a component of Obamacare that was very technocratic, like creating these exchanges with uh, the individual mandate and subsidies. And that was kind of a mess. Like the website rollout was a total disaster, and I don't know like the total effects of of all of the exchanges and the subsidies. But the other part of it was just expanding Medicaid and increasing the level at which people could, the amount of money people could make and still be eligible for Medicaid. And like the evidence is that that did the most good for helping people. And that's like a very simple solution, right? Like we have this program that just gives everyone healthcare if they make below a certain amount of income or have a disability or whatever the criteria is. We just like gave that to more people and that like really decreased mortality in the states that did the rollout. Um, So like that's the type of uh, kind of policy solution that I would favor over a technocratic solution. Obviously, there are specific cases where you can point to like maybe a good technocratic solution is actually better. Um, but I think it often just overcomplicates things. It makes the connection between government action and like the help you're getting less clear. Like I think like the checks with Trump's name on it was like a very smart move on Trump's part. And if he had pushed for more of that, he probably would have won the election. And I, I'm really in favor of like the government just being very transparent in how it helps people. So there's like a connection between who you vote for and then like what actually happens to you down the line. I should actually have you explain and tell people what the article is actually about before we discuss it any further. Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's called The Reputation Launderers, and it ran in print and current affairs, and it's now online. Um, and it's about these three podcasts, uh, The Tim Ferriss Show, Freakonomics Radio, 
and Recode Decode with Kara Swisher. And they're each like different and uh, they each get like a pretty long treatment. The general idea is like they're all kind of productivity and business podcasts that do interviews with like powerful people. Tim Ferriss's conceit is that he will like break down the habits and routines that make people successful so you can then become successful yourself. Freakonomics Radio is sort of like an extension of the book Freakonomics where Stephen Dubner will interview um, powerful business people like to kind of understand like what makes them tick and how they were successful but also they'll do like episodes on like a specific policy idea or like why you know American democracy is a duopoly or like analyzing rent control and why it doesn't work in their in their view and then Kara Swisher is this like maybe the most famous tech journalist she recently moved to the New York Times and Recode Decode was through Vox and it was just like interviews with like big tech and business guys um, and her thing is that she's like a tough interviewer and she's like got that girl boss energy and the, the inspiration for this was uh, Charles Koch going on the Tim Ferriss show like two years ago. I had listened to Tim Ferriss back when I was in college and I was kind of like a techno utopian uh, hoping to like start my own business. And like I was a very different person. Um, and I was like trying to figure out how to you know be successful. And, you know, there's still great things I got out of the show. I think like he talks about mental health in like an interesting way and like with a lot of candor. He talks about psych- psychedelics, which I think are beneficial. And he's invested a lot in that. And like if he's talking to somebody like Adam Savage, like the Mythbusters guy, or like Paul Stamets, like this mushroom guy, I think like it's a it's a fun show and like he's a pretty good interviewer. But when he interviewed Charles Koch, just the mere fact of him interviewing Koch was like already like, whoa, this is weird. I'm I'm not opposed to people interviewing bad people, right? Like it, there's a time and a place for like a, a hostile interview, like Frost Nixon. I use the example of Mehdi Hassan interviewing uh, Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater. And I think like there are some really like legendary like hostile interviews. But I just knew Tim Ferriss was not going to do that because he had never once done that in his life, at least not recorded it and released it. And so the episode was just like really disturbing. I mean, it's very boring um, for a lot of it, but like Ferriss would interview Coke about like his background and his upbringing and like his business. And then he was like, all right, I have to ask these tough questions that I got from the listeners. Uh, I call him a craven ventriloquist because he's just like reading out the questions and just clearly doesn't want to be doing it and like doesn't ask any follow-ups he already like kind of walks back the question halfway through it he just like assumes the good faith of his guests and just lets coke like say a bunch of bullshit <laughs> basically uh doesn't push back doesn't ask any follow-ups and so it's it's worse than if he had just done like an interview like the view or like some kind of puff piece where he's just like hey charles like what are all these great charity things you're doing and just like ignored climate change ignored like you know his labor practices or like the epa and because he asked these questions it like gave like some people you know maybe not like the most savvy <laughs> Uh, listeners the impression that was like a real interview and like this was like real journalism um but then like a lot of people on twitter and on his website in the comments were like really upset with this as well um and so i deeply analyzed that episode looked at a few others um and decided to like make it a kind of a larger piece about these other shows and how they do something similar yeah yeah it's like i'm very interested in what these guys actually believe in because there's a sense in which they try to be kind of neutral, but they're not really like, I feel like they do stuff where it's like, Hey, we're just being objective investigators. Mm -hmm. And this just happens to be where the data lies, you know? So they're not like Rush Limbaugh. They're not like these other people who are clear Republican uh, operatives. They occasionally have left-wing people on, but you kind of have to like add up the context of everything or the totality of their views to start to put together a picture. And, and um, I mean, it's and what I'm trying to figure out is, to what extent do you think these people are really on board with um, the deeper ideology of these right-wingers and ghouls 
versus it's not in their interest to be too curious because uh, it's going to get in the way of them making money and and their um, business evangelism and life optimization hustle. Because I think it's very hard to be a life optimization uh, socialist or or <laughs> radical. You know, I think it's just going to, when you start looking at systems too hard, uh, teaching people to spend all the time radi- uh, radically optimizing themselves um, seems like uh, spitting in the wind or pissing in the ocean, you know? So, yeah, what what is your sense? And I'm sure it's not the same answer for everyone, but out of the people you covered, how would you rank true believers versus, I'm just not going to think about this too hard because I need uh, to, on some level, believe this bullshit and, and peddle it that anyone can do anything and that capitalism is good. So, you know, from truly evil to just... Um, Okay, so if if it was Nazi Germany, like active people rounding people up and putting them in gas chambers versus the person who's uh, the receptionist to Hitler and (laughs) just keeps the blinders on. Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, I don't know enough about like what everybody else was doing in Germany at the time. Um, But I I think like going through each in turn, I mean, I'll say up front that I think they all believe in capitalism and they being Tim Ferriss, Stephen Dubner from Freakonomics and Kara Swisher. I think... Uh, let me add. Let me add this. Um, mm-hmm. They all believe in capitalism, and I think uh, the Koch brothers believe in capitalism too. But do you think the Koch brothers, um, their politics, can be summed up as just a belief in capitalism, or do you think there's some true belief in in Charles Koch seems to actually believe in things beyond capitalism, like you know, pure pure. Um, Pure capitalism. He seems to also have like strong beliefs about a lot of right wing issues that don't even relate to business. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I was talking to somebody about this uh, about the book Dark Money by Jane Mayer, which I reference quite a bit, and it's all about like the Koch brothers and other right wing billionaires and how they finance like a complete reshaping of American politics and making it more right wing. And um, he thought that this person I was talking to, he thought that Mayer kind of overstretched in arguing that like everything Koch did was like out of self interest. For example, I think he backed gay marriage like before it was politically popular. And there's like not a real financial incentive to do that. But like if you're a libertarian, you might think that the government shouldn't be involved in marriage at all. Um, But at the very least, like they shouldn't treat people differently based on their sexual orientation. Um, And Mayer would also make points where like uh, Koch cares a lot about, you know, criminal justice reform and worked with like Van Jones and George Soros on that issue. And Mayer spun it as like, well, you know, his companies have been criminally investigated. Like he could be liable for crimes that his companies have committed. So, you know, being lenient on crime might actually be in his interest. And like, that might be true. That might be a component of it. But if he's like a libertarian, which he claims to be, uh, and I, I think he is, that might just be consistent with his worldview. Uh, but what's interesting, like in the interview, uh, Koch answered one of the questions like this. He said, I don't like the term capitalism. That assumes that what we're after is a system where certain people have a lot of capital. That's not what we're about. And then he goes on, like, everyone should have the chance to realize their potential, including those who start with nothing, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, well, dude, you have like $47 billion. It's probably higher now. Um, so if you're not about having a lot of capital, like, you can give it away. Um, and he's like, had decades to do this and he's like 79 years old or something. And clearly, like, this is just so full of shit. Um, but yeah, I, I'm happy to go back to the other question about like the different hosts or, or expand on this. Yes, one. yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so Tim Ferriss, I think he's the hardest to pin down. He talks about politics the least. And like, he's the only one of the three who doesn't like self identify as a journalist. He's a writer. And like, he would, you know, that's kind of his defense. It's sort of like the John Stewart, I'm just a comedian uh, line to me. It's like, well, like, you're doing something that looks like journalism. 
journalism when you're interviewing, you know, somebody as big as Charles Koch. And it, the fact that it looks like journalism, I think, means it has to be held to a different standard. But I think he self-IDs as a liberal, um, probably like a, a Silicon Valley type liberal who's like, you know, he's super pro like drug decriminalization and legalization for psychedelics at, at least and probably for other drugs. Um, I don't think he's big on the prison system. He is like pro market. Um, I think he's like deregulation focused, like pro gun, like kind of like a hodgepodge of like libertarian social views with like some like center left, like economic views. Um, yeah, I think he just like doesn't really think too much about uh, politics. And when he sees the opportunity to interview Charles Koch, he's just like, oh, Charles Koch is, you know, one of the most successful businessmen alive. Um, he's like extremely famous. This will be like a big episode. I should just interview him. Um, but I don't think like their politics are super closely aligned uh but you wouldn't really get that impression from the episode but i also just don't think he like understands charles Koch's politics or his background too well because it just if you only listen to that episode and didn't know anything about coke you would think he's like a compassionate conservative who like believes in climate change and like you know genuinely cares about criminal justice reform and like helping the poor and like his record is really not that if you look at it in any detail um and then i i, I can go through the other ones as well oh yeah please do so Stephen Dubner, uh, co-author of Freakonomics with Stephen Levitt. Uh, Dubner was a journalist for the New York Times. Um, he, you know, would self-ID as a journalist, but like his show, Freakonomics Radio, is how he spends, I think, pretty much all of his time now. Um, and and the show, like, it's sort of like an NPR style, like, well-produced show that has like these kind of slick audio packages and does interviews that are like spliced together, and like they they'll do they'll talk to a few different experts on a given topic and like put together a show on that. His politics. I think he's probably most like a modern neoliberal. So like pro-free markets, pro-immigration, also like probably criminal justice reform, socially like, you know, liberal or at least indifferent. I, I like the term, like you can't really be socially liberal and fiscally conservative. You can just be socially indifferent. Um, but I don't think he really cares what people do in the privacy of their own home. Um, but he does have like opinions about how the economy should be governed. Um, yeah, I, I think he just like became really interested in economics and more or less adopts like mainstream uh, American university economics views on things. So like rent control is bad. Um, what else? Like immigration is good. Uh, free trade is good. Like like these kind of positions that a lot of economists come to um, in surveys. And he's just like been in that world for a really long time. The episode I think that is quite revealing is he does an episode on socialism, um, which I analyze in the article. And it's really funny because, you know, in some ways it's like it's instructive. You like learn some things throughout it. Um, but there's like some really big tells that this guy like doesn't really know what he's talking about. Um, he calls like Venezuela, you know, the textbook definition of socialism because the government owns a lot of things. Um, and like that's a really stupid definition of socialism, right? Like the government could be a monarchy and it could own all the things. And that's not socialism because the government's not accountable to the people. Uh, accountability to people and like social control of the means of production is like an important component to socialism to anybody who was like a modern socialist that I know at least. Um, and in the episode, he talks to a, a ton of people, but like, none of them are socialists. Um, so he talks to like, uh, I think what Jeffrey Sachs from Columbia, who is like a like, left-ish like economist to, you know, advise Bernie Sanders, but he's not a socialist. And he says so in the episode. Um, and he talks to a, a Scandinavian guy who also doesn't identify as a socialist. And it's like, well, you know, they're not like unicorns. Like you can go talk to a socialist. Like you could talk to um, Richard Wolff, who's a Marxist economist who like does interviews all the time. And I'm sure he would have been happy to go on the show. Um, and so it's, it's just kind of like frustrating because it could be an interesting discussion of like, you know, what level of public ownership is like ideal in a, in a, 
and an economy. Like Norway owns like an enormous amount of its economy is publicly owned, much more so than Venezuela, and they seem to be doing quite well. Um, so like that's like an interesting discussion that you could have with like experts, but you know it didn't happen. And then Kara Swisher, I, I'm probably the least familiar with her of, of all of these guys. I, I've listened to like dozens of episodes of each of these shows, I think. But I, I think she's got like she's like also fairly pro-capitalism, but like you know with government regulation, like she thinks that like the government should set industrial policy. She's like anti-monopoly, uh, so thinks that like you know the government antitrust should step in, especially with the big tech companies within her domain, which is like tech. She has like the most aggressive and like you know political uh, politically informed like views. Um, and I didn't really focus on her uh, domain of of technology because she also talks to like all these people outside of technology, which I thought were more interesting. But yeah, I, I think she's like a, a fairly standard like West Coast liberal. Um, I think that she has like I mentioned like girl boss energy like she's an entrepreneur herself um, and all of these guys in their own way are entrepreneurs like Tim Ferriss has like started his own company um, his podcast he definitely views as like an entrepreneurial enterprise Freakonomics Radio is like its own business at this point and something, sure started like a, a massive coding um, conference as well something that's weird with a lot of these people and particularly people like Tim Ferriss and Karis uh, Tim Ferriss and um, some of the, some of these other ones, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk is one. Um, um, I don't think he's interviewed anybody big like um, Coke, but when you see a lot of his dabblings in politics, when he, when he t- veers into it, it's always like he talks about black people. Like, oh, I know it's hard, but what are you gonna do? Like, let race hold you down? Like, you know, just just whine all day? You gotta uh, get in the game, pick yourself up. So he says little things that make me think, okay. I see the signs. If you ever ventured into big political interviews, it would probably be the same kind of right-wing apologism that these other guys do. But when I look at all of them, it's weird. They're like entrepreneurs, yeah, but business is like very down on the list. Like I know like uh, Tim Ferriss had different companies that he had, but it seems like he just kind of glosses over them. Like they don't really sit there and tell you, here's the best program to balance um, your accounts. Or like, I think the nuts and bolts of business they don't really care about. I think there's something else going on. It's psychological. It's something that is like a soothing balm to like middle-class people who want to believe that they can just hack and optimize their way to the top of their fields or whatever. It's kind of like how when, if you ever work in sales, there's this always constant bubble of positive bombardment, you know, to keep the salespeople um, going like 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 the culture has to be one of go 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 push them you know to get a thick skin and to uh, persevere and be irrationally optimistic like when, when I read Four Hour Work Week I was shocked at how little actual business you know advice there was it was all ways to kind of game things and uh, do things in an unconventional way. This guy, James Altucher, I don't know if you heard of him. He's in that ecosystem too. And he doesn't really, really talk about the nuts and bolts of a business, um, how to do your taxes, how to do any of that stuff. And I think in this motivation, or I call it a brotivation uh, ecosphere, ecosystem, there's entrepreneur means something different. And entrepreneur seems to be like, uh, I'm going to own nice things and not have to have a boss. And that's really just just it. It's just consuming fancy stuff and not having a boss. Even if not having a boss forces you to stretch the definition of business. Anything that means you don't have a technical boss counts as a business, even if it's just selling ebooks about how to make a million dollars. 
You know, it's, it's a very, it's a very weird, it's a very weird thing to me. Like how much of these business podcasts are very light on the actual business, even when they interview actual titans of of business. Like, like they sell ideology, even when they're not having a right wing explicitly ideological ideological guests on i guess is, is what I, is what i'm saying yeah and i actually haven't read uh ferris's books which like it's kind of funny given how much other content i've consumed from him but the my understanding of like you know four hour work week is if you do these things you will be able to like be independent of the normal economy and like work remotely and you know do travel the world um yes yeah, very much about the lifestyle true. yeah yeah, it's it's like he kind of advocates you becoming like a fake expert in something, like charging like marketing, charging for these marketing seminars. And it's like, you know, maybe like, you know, it worked for you, but like, I mean, first off, he's like a smart guy. And like, if you're not like really good at, you know, manipulating or persuading people and don't have like a, a bunch of like raw ability, like trying to do this, like might just not work. Um, but but also uh, white privilege and credentials, like he's gone to totally. top schools. Yeah, Princeton and yeah. Yeah, so his network is crazy. That's one thing I didn't know when I was younger and applying to college was that what top schools really give you is the network. And, you know, like when I had friends who went to like top schools, the things that they can uh, do with that network, I realized, wow, I thought school was just about what has the best program. But mm. yeah, yeah, like if this person wants to raise money for their business, I had a friend that like tapped like 50 people from Yale. Some of them he didn't even really know. He barely knew. He just, he just went to like the Yale um, some kind of book that Yale had and just called the people from his year that barely remembered him and just told him this business idea he had they wanted to invest and some of the people were friends some of the people were acquaintances some of the people were virtual strangers so like i always think between having money i guess i heard his parents um are okay and having the credentials and all that stuff there's a lot a lot of white privilege in addition that he doesn't kind of uh tell you with all this four-hour work week stuff totally Totally, yeah. I, I don't think like that book was written with like a, an intersectional um, perspective in mind. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely not. Even though um, I don't think you have to have an intersectional um, perspective to just realize white white privilege. You know, like I just think any basic um, consciousness of of race and class. But he, it's it's a it's interesting to read. I mean, I used to read all those type of blogs and all those types, and it's it's there's this weird flattening of everything that I, I always talk about. Where I mean, like. Here's, here's some names I'm thinking of offhand that seem to be all part of this ecosystem. But you have like James Alt- James Altucher, Sam Harris, Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Eric Weinstein, Jack Welch when he was alive, you know, pop up on these on these shows, uh, Charles Koch. And it's like we try to sit down and think like, what do these people even really have in common? There is something in common, but I think it masks itself as an absence of value or an absence of belief or neutrality kind of like how people think like if you ask white americans if america has culture they'll tell you no it doesn't have culture or same thing with like uh british people in england they'll say oh britain doesn't have a culture like but it buys into this default normative thing there it's, it's kind of like if you ask a, a fish to describe its environment and if a fish could talk and yeah it's not going to bring up that you know uh well there's a lot of water here you know because like what is water? Yeah, it takes the water for granted. What is water? But if you put a human, you know, drop him in the middle of the ocean un- underwater, all he's gonna notice is the water. You know, like uh, I, f- I feel like there's, and I think a lot of times that happens with ideology when you when everybody's kind of has a 
similar unstated ideology, it starts becoming like a, it starts seeming like a lack of ideology and a neutrality. But there's something in common between these guys, whether you call them the intellectual dark web or whatever. People don't really think of Tim Ferriss as intellectual dark web, but I think he's adjacent to it. Definitely adjacent. Yeah, he's been on like Sam Harris before. Yeah, they've all been on each other's. Like Eric Weinstein, I'm probably sure has been on his show. Yeah, yeah. They've all been on each other's shows. Uh, And I don't know if you have an idea of what, that thing is because that that's what really i guess i mean i guess you can just boil it down to capitalism and tech technocracy so that ties them all yeah i I think like there's this line like ideology is like your breath like you can't smell your own um oh that's a good one i actually learned that in a stephen pinker book because he described himself as like very non-ideological and like testing that way on like uh some test of ideologies that like he was like a very neutral person um and I think like he's a good one too, by the way. For example, yeah, to- totally like in keeping with like the other people you named, and um, I-, I think I think all those guys they make a lot of assumptions about how the world is, and many of those assumptions are unstated um, and untested. And so like I think a good example is like Sam Harris had on uh, I think Eric Schmidt from the New York Times and like a political scientist um, from some university, and this was like maybe a year or two ago, and they were talking about the Democratic primaries before they even happened. And uh, they talked about like the prospect of Bernie running again. And they were like, oh, like this would be a disaster for Democrats if Bernie were to like run or like be the nominee or whatever. And like Bernie was doing well in the polls. He was like a respected, like highly high favorable politician in the country. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of evidence he would have won in 2016. And like a expert political reporter from The New York Times and a expert political scientist from like London School of Economics, I think it might have been, all said this stuff. And Sam Harris was like, yep, totally. Like it's just if you are making assumptions at that level, like you're just totally blind to like the like how you got to the conclusion you got to and it's just a world that they're in where like none of this stuff gets challenged it's it's just really hard to fight back against um i'm trying to think of an example of somebody who like is very clear in in the assumptions that they make about the world like ben shapiro is like very ideological um right like he has like a a strong ideology and and states his perspective um and it's like nauseating (laughs) um he's like got awful views on the world but you can like pin him as like a reactionary or a conservative or whatever you want to call him whereas like somebody like sam harris or steven pinker it's like a lot harder to peg them um politically and they won't describe themselves as like having a certain um ideology and yeah but you could piece it together with those guys like one thing i pegged them on having for a long time and they've both of them eventually became more explicit on it is uh race science they're very Mm. big race and iq guys and pinker like pinker does like this kind of chicken shit shuffle where he tries to fill in all the blanks that around the subject that would lead you to um the idea of genetic determinism and whatever but stop short of ever saying it and sam harris kind of does the same until he kind of went mask off i give stephen picker credit for us taking this long and not ever fully going mask off because most of these people <laughs> sooner or later they get that racial tourette's and they can't keep it in like so yeah. sam harris did it and he went on the vox podcast with ezra klein and yeah and got pretty much destroyed but he finally came out and was openly um, pro-race science yeah, at, at the very least, defending Charles Murray's honor. Um, and yeah, in, in Stephen Pinker's book, The Blank Slate, which is about human nature, uh, I think this is where he talked about it. He talked about like the Charles Murray race and IQ stuff. And he's a big believer that IQ is real and like predicts important things about the world. Um, and the way he talked about it was like, well, like, black people in America have been historically oppressed. 
and in other countries where there's like a minority that it faces like legal oppression um, and systematic oppression uh there's differences in iq scores and like once the legal oppression is dismantled like the iq like goes back to the mean like they basically uh converge and american racial hierarchy and oppression has been so bad that it might just be taking uh much longer and there's like evidence that the gap is closing um that's the latest that i've seen him talk about it but he might have talked about it since um and i find that like I don't know if you assume that IQ matters. Like I find that to be uh, a far less objectionable perspective on it than like Charles Murray's or like Sam Harris's defense of Charles Murray. Yeah, but I think a problem with Steven Pinker is the fact that it doesn't look objectionable on the surface makes it more um, dangerous because I think it leads you there anyway if you read the totality of his work. Because first off, uh, Blank Slate's a horrible book in terms of because he creates so many straw men about behaviorism and it's um crazy like there's a lot of articles about um but if you google the words blank slate straw men he'll mm-hmm. he'll do things like uh, for example he complains that you know people have created a genetic determinist as a straw man and no such thing as a genetic determinist exists it's similar to how there's people who claim nonstop that there's no such thing as a class reductionist that is just mm-hmm. something that people made up uh is, is that is that no true scotsman game which you know i think is um untrue but he uh claims it that, that no but then he claims that there's this other thing called blank slaters which is he's doing to them the same thing that he claims that they're doing to genetic determinists and the funny part is way less evidence of anybody actually being a blank slater than there is of being a genetic genetic determinist like what he's doing is way more egregious than this accusation of um the misnomer of genetic genetic determinist and the way he'll do it is he'll say stuff like like for example he has this quote by john john what john watts uh, John, John Watson, Watson like, right? Like of like Watson and Crick. Sorry, it's not. No, it's a different. There's a different John Watson. Um, John Watson is supposed to be the creator of. Um, well, he's one of the oh, early yeah, creators of yeah. uh, behaviorism, and he's supposed to be the guy that he's supposed to be the guy. On uh, this good article on it, it's called "Why Pinker Needs Behaviorism: A Critique of uh, the Blank Slate" by Elliot. Yeah, uh, I just found this actually. Was it? When you uh, when I googled it, it came up. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um. So this is what this is an example of how sneaky Pinker is. He does his authorized books, right? So he wants to kind of paint uh, people as blank slaters. And by blank slaters, he's saying that these people be- are so stupid. They believe that everyone's a blank slate and you can make um, anyone into anything with uh, intervention, right? So he... Um, actually, I'll just read, I'll just read the, the paragraph straight through. He says, The crux of Pinker's book is a negative argument. The quote-unquote blank slate of the title is a position he attempts to discredit, not defend. In outlining this quote-unquote blank slate position, Pinker places much of the blame for its prevalence on the behaviorist program that dominated psychological thinking from the 1930s through the 1960s. To illustrate how behaviorists defended and lauded this hyper-nurturist approach, Pinker quotes the famous line from John Watson's behaviorism that reads, Give me a dozen healthy infants and my own specified world to bring them up in, and I'll guarantee to take anyone at random and train him to become any type of specialist I might select. Doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant chief, and yes, even beggarman and thief. Regardless of his talents, penchants, tendencies, abilities, vocations, and race of his ancestors. So like when you read that... Pinker puts that quote in the book. When you read that, you're like, holy crap, um, blank slaters are real. That's the craziest thing I ever heard. That 
uh, with his science, he can just make anyone into anything, no matter what their natural gifts. So then Pickett goes, see, so you haven't seen any genetic determinists go that far in their views, huh? So clearly, like, they're just projecting their own extremism and genetic determinism isn't real. And the article continues, uh, reading these lines, I too am struck by the extreme blank slatism espoused by this founding father of behaviorist thought. Pinker, however, does not immediately include the subsequent lines from this quotation. Watson continues, I am going beyond my facts and I ha- and I admit it, but so have the advocates of the contrary and they have been doing it for many thousands of years. So Watson tempers this previous radical empiricist assertion by acknowledging that is that is exaggerated, but invokes the license he feels that he needs to take to overcome the prevalent innatist uh, genetic determinist uh, polemic. So Pickard does that a lot. Like so, what Watson was doing was he was deliberately doing an exaggerated opposite of genetic determinism to display how stupid genetic determinists were. Pinker yeah. just puts the first half of the quote. So then he could paint a straw man that shows. And to me, if you're doing that, you're very invested in people believing in genetic determinism. And the only reason I could think you're doing that is to do um, race and IQ. Like That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. He does that a lot. He lies, 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 but not with actual lying, with omission and leaving things out. So what he does for a hundred pages, for a hundred pages um, later, for a hundred pages, he just talks about all these crazy blank slate nurturers and leaves out what they actually believe. He just cherry picks a quote. So now he primes the reader to think, okay, I can't trust anyone who's not a genetic determinist. Yeah, I, I actually I wrote a long review of uh, the Better Angels of Our Nature, the Stephen Pinker book about violence. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm totally with you in that, like he will very selectively read the evidence and present it. Um, like he had a, a section on sexual assault, and the two people he cited were Christina Hoff Summers, who's like a kind of anti-feminist uh, philosopher, and um, I think Catherine McDonald. I, I might be getting her name wrong, but. Um, or Heather McDonald, who's like a right wing person, like neither. Yeah, Manhattan Institute. Yeah, it, it's like it's really egregious. Um, yeah, he's think, very like, nefarious because he pretends to be doing even handed uh, scientific investigation and just reporting the facts. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think like the core thesis of Better Angels was correct, which is like this is the safest time to live if you were to be like a randomly selected person, um, and like that's just like a reading of the evidence that I think is like pretty hard to dispute. The explanations for why and like uh, the ways in which he down plays like american imperialism um and like nuclear weapons and like all all this stuff that's like all very ideological and similarly i think the blank slate like the core idea is that like there is a human nature and genetics determines a lot of like our abilities and our personality i I think that is there's like very strong evidence for it like if you look at like twins separated at birth with identical genetic code uh they'll have like very similar similar personalities that are like stable over the course of their lifetime yeah Um, but that those are those are flawed studies they're they're very flawed studies and that's another thing that he does wrong there's a big problem with those studies but there's a guy who writes about well there's one book that's really good for seeing why those twin studies are michigan's the most popular uh cited one but the problem with those studies first off they're all funded by uh, a eugenics uh, think tank. I forget, I think it's Pioneer Fund. And the flaw with them is, first off, uh, the book, hold on, I'm going to tell you the book that that has it. But there's um there's a guy who does really good work with twin studies. And you can find his stuff 
Dean today. I also read one of his books. Jay Joseph talks about, and he has an article called The Problem with Twin Studies, right? And he breaks down all the problems with it and his other people. But one of the problems with the twin studies is that, well, first they're funded by the Pioneer Fund and they're very biased. But the thing is, you have two very hot women, right? Say they're not even twins. They're both very hot. And you, and they grew up in different parts of the country. And you ask them about, you ask them about um, what their experience in high school was like. You know, they might be like, well, I was on a cheerleading squad. I um, was very popular with boys. I dated uh, a star athlete, you know, and had this amount of friends and this, that. Like, if they both grew up in a similar town and and whatever, um, like, people who have certain ways of appearance, it affects the development. Like, for example, if two people have a propensity to be fat and are not conventionally attractive, they'll meet on the internet and it's like, yeah, you know, I was bullied. People made fun of me for acne. So it's like, is it because they're actual identical twins or is it because people treat people who look a certain way the same, which makes them the personalities develop in predictable, predictable ways, you know, like that's a big problem with the twin studies is that, um, well, that's one of the basic problems is you don't know hot people, ugly people, fat people, skinny people just tend to have similar experiences and then develop, um, certain certain ways and they try to use it with race too but it's like if you look at how black people are bombarded with negative propaganda about themselves then how do you know that that's not why two black people develop a low self-esteem that causes them to check out of education like like there's this idea that the black people are in two different environments they're in a this one's in a white school this one's in a black school and that you know they both turn out the same but you assume that just because I'm black and you're white and we're both in the same environment, what the twin studies um, don't acknowledge is that the person changes the environment. Like, for example, if myself and a hot, famous woman both walk into a room of horny men, technically it's the same environment we're both in, but the hot woman is going to get harassed and bothered and pressed and plied with free drinks and be a focus of attention all night while people are just going to pretty much ignore me. Now, it's technically the same environment, but was it really the same environment for both of us? If you were to ask me, hey, what was the environment like? I was like, oh, it was pretty chill. You know, everybody was really nice and everything. And then you asked the hot woman, what's the environment like? Oh, it was very hostile. It was very demeaning or whatever. Now, can you use that to say that that woman is deficient for that environment like and that's the problem with trying to say look we put a black kid in this white school that white kids can perform well in and he still had bad results it implies that even though it's literally the same environment it's also experientially the same environment you see, you see what i'm saying like yeah yeah there's a lot of flaws with the, with the twin studies that erases a lot of the reality of um how your actual body changes the environment for you yeah I mean, couldn't you just say that that's part of the genetic, right? Like if you have the genetics that make you fat or tall or short or, or black or whatever, like that's part of how your genetics predict your life outcomes. I mean, I think you can say that, but what these people are trying to say is that that genetics extends to IQ. They're not blaming the genetics of your looks. They're not blaming the genetics or whatever. They're just trying to look at people go to these different schools, not just look at their test scores and then, oh, this black kid in the white school, you know, didn't achieve as much. So it's got to be the IQ. But so it's erasing a whole bunch of other more obvious genetics 
to make conclusions about something that is not purely genetic. And what I mean by that is there is a lot that goes into, uh, I mean, even if you believe in uh, what IQ is supposed to indicate, there's a lot that goes into um, development of IQ besides your pure genetics. Because if there wasn't, people wouldn't even tell the kids to study. You know, they would just be like, oh, you know, you have the right genes. Like like even even Charles Murray, he's never going to tell his kid not to study. Like, like they know... There's a um, a nurture moment to IQ. So if you so that's kind of my problem. Like if if that's was their theory that your genetics um, cause that your genetics cause differential experiences with these different differential development, I'd be down with that. But that's not um, their theory. They're, they're trying to just make assumptions about IQ. The second problem is. If that was their theory, then they would be exactly the same as the behaviorist because that's the other problem with Steven Pinker is he exaggerates. Because the way you describe Pinker's book, you said Pinker's book is um, is that genetics play a role. The problem is behaviorists already believe that. That's that's the purpose of the straw man. He makes this straw man that pretends that behaviorists don't believe genetics matter. But behaviorists don't believe that. Behaviorists just believe in the reactions that happen to you. So to a behaviorist, the black person's genetics have to be incorporated into, or the hot woman or the fat person's genetics has to be incorporated into the responses and the reactions and the stimuli, you know, as in if the black person is getting negative messaging, they have to record that. They don't pretend that he's not getting them because he's black or the, the woman's not getting them because they're fat. Like that's, that's the problem with Pinker stuff. Pinker um, class reductionists do the same thing. Class reductionists paint a more benign version of their belief where they say, um, yeah, what we believe is race and class uh, matter. What our enemies believe in is that just identity matters and not class at all. But there's very few people who are that absolute in their um, identitarianism. Like maybe there's some, but it's very few, right? But yeah, then when you talk to... MSNBC. Yeah, they're all on MSNBC, exactly. But, but if you ask the uh, class reductionist, um, despite his very nice-sounding, even-handed, you know, thing of race and class, when you ask them to, like, give me examples where race matters, they carve out enough exceptions that you realize, okay, this is so small, you might as well just say that, like, as benign as you make it, make it sound, in practice, race matters and identity matters so little, you really are a class reductionist. And that's the thing with um, the people, the twin studies and the pinker, they put a very benign um, level to their thing. But this is what they say. They say, we just believe genetics and nature, you know, genetics just play a role. And that's all we're saying. Our enemies are these people who are blank slaters who pretend genetics and don't play a role at all, which is, you know, which is a lie. And the truth is their so-called enemies are the ones who actually believe genetics and behavior play a role. The pinkers of the world, their real belief is that um, genetics barely play any role. Sorry, that, that nurture barely plays any role. And it's all genetics. So what they do is they steal their enemies more benign belief as their stated one, what they secretly believe in genetic determinism, then they give their enemies a straw man that's very absurdist and easy to knock down that, you know, so now you start believing, okay, I have, I can ignore all these other people out of hand because these are people who deny genetics. So who am I left to listen to? The people that Pinker says are safe to listen to. And who does Pinker laud? People like Charles Murray and all this other stuff. And that's why I think the Pinkers of the world are actually more dangerous because they prime you to ignore 
like Stephen Jay Gould and all these people who actually practice what Pinker says he's practicing, which is weighing genetics and nurture uh, in an even-handed way. I'm, I'm sorry for being like like long-winded, but that was no. It's it's interesting. I I am very curious to look into the twin study criticism that uh, you mentioned because yeah, like my impression was that those studies were like the best way to understand how genetics predicts behavior. Um, but uh, Jay Joseph has a whole book on it, but he has good he has good um he also has good good uh articles too like you don't yeah, have to read like a pdf that's like pretty um like seven pages long so i'll have some more readings to do yeah yeah but there's, there's another good book it's called the dependent gene um well J. Joseph has like three books the gene illusion no two books no that was three the trouble with twin studies it's just nothing but about twin studies mm-hmm. and all the problem with them then he has the missing gene and the gene illusion and then there's another book called the dependent gene that's not by him but is very, very good as well. It's by a guy called David David Moore. It's called The Dependent Gene, The Fallacy of Nature Versus um, Nurture. But yeah, I mean, something about the way these guys all have the same people on and it just adds up to something nefarious. I don't know if it's unconscious that they're all being pulled together or if it's conspiratorial, but it, it really, really disturbs me the degree to which... Uh, Charles Murray and Steve Pinker are still are still kind of um aligned and I feel like they have I mean not just not aligned but respectable you know what I mean and I think Steven Pinker is like the good cop and Charles Murray is the bad cop but they both lead to the same place it's interesting that like Charles Murray is uh I mean Sam Harris called him like what the most unfairly maligned person alive or some absurd claim oh wait um, who called him that uh Sam Harris like when oh they wow interview together yeah. it, it was like some crazy claim about like how poor like poor charles murray has just been so unfairly maligned but like if being unfairly maligned means like paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to write like one or two papers that are like two pages long and speak to universities and like influence welfare policy for the biggest like the largest economy in the world then uh yeah call me like unfairly maligned like that sounds great (laughs) yeah it's not a bad way to live yeah yeah i'm crying all the way to the bank the um the the stuff with the Koch brothers, I mean, they've had a long history of stuff, and you go into it pretty well in the article, like the amount of stuff that they've been involved in. And your article uh, printed out, it's about 13 pages, and I think you probably only captured a fraction of all the bad things they did. And I think oh, you even so pointed hard. out that it's more a matter of trying to figure out what to omit than what to uh, include, but... Totally. Yeah, if you don't mind going into like exactly why the Koch brothers are so bad, you know, and and why it's not a minor thing to um, throw them a softball interview. Totally. Yeah. I mean, so uh, I think the father's name was Fred. Fred Koch Sr. Uh, made his money by like stealing uh, design from a competitor and then selling oil production to Stalin and uh, the Nazis. Um, and in this incredible fact, he helped Germany produce uh, or build these like massive oil refineries. And then he also helped make the planes that America used to bomb those refineries uh, during the war. So he's on both sides of that. And, you know, you shouldn't be held responsible for the sins of your father. But it's kind of funny that like his background, he talks about his father lovingly uh, in the interview with uh, Tim Ferriss. Um, But yeah, like the business they're in is extremely dirty. I think the biggest impact of the Cook Brothers business is just on the environment. Um, They're one of three companies that's in the top 10, I think, in terms of uh, emissions in both uh, carbon emissions, air emissions, and water emissions. Um, And the other two companies that are in that top 10 are over twice the size. Um, I think it's like Berkshire Hathaway and maybe ExxonMobil. I might be getting this mixed up. Um, 
But yeah, they, they are extremely dirty businesses to be in. They're, they do a lot of oil production and refining. Um, but I think the Koch brothers are more famous for their politics. And they've been just incredibly successful at financing a right-wing kind of a it's called astroturf movement to push for small government. Um, they were like a big part of financing like the Tea Party. Um, they would put together these conferences that like convinced judges to rule more conservatively. Um, they like helped finance like the law and economics movement. Um, and this has all been like very successful, right? Like they have like so many Republican politicians in their corner. They have these giant conferences where they get a bunch of other wealthy, frankly, like white men uh, to go put their money towards getting uh, Republicans elected and then ruling in favor of their corporate interests. And they help push for like the the tax cuts that uh, Trump passed. And these like, you know, famously did nothing for regular people, but drastically improved the prospects for wealthy people, didn't really improve the economy at all. And so, yeah, like that's kind of in a nutshell what the Cokes are about. Um, they've just been probably the most successful billionaires in influencing uh, government and, and who gets elected and what they do once they're in power. Um, and Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, I think it's just like really essential for understanding uh, how our politics got to be the way it is. Oh, and Citizens United was a, a big thing that they helped get uh, pushed, which more or less allowed like unlimited spending on political activity, uh, provided it met like certain criteria of like not coordinating with the campaigns. All right, y'all. So... That is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.